This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book, and it is number two of the series on the book of Judges. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and if you who are listening would care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us 2 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3. If you have read this reading, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, you will have already observed that in the, sec- in the third chapter there is a command in verse 6 to withdraw yourself and there's a modification in verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. You see, one of the exceeding difficulties there is with regard to our deportment in this life is not to be so free and easy that anything goes and not to be so incisive that nothing's right. It's a very, very difficult path. And the only word that obtains all the way through is what the Apostle has written, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And even then, faithful to what? Well, we've got to be faithful to the Lord, we've got to be faithful to his written word, we've got to be faithful to the fact that we ourselves, if we were treated according to our deserts, would come off badly sometimes. It's not an easy thing. And yet, when we come to this book of Judges, written in the Old Testament, for our guidance, we see that sometimes these folks were sent on a dreadful mission, uh, but they temporized. And instead of it doing good, it opened the door to a flood of evil. And that flood of evil is still all over the earth. I don't think some of us realize, and it's not good for us to soak ourselves in wickedness. If you look at the companion Bible, you'll see there is one appendix which gives you a little insight into the obscenities of the worship of Ashtoreth. And when you read in the book of Judges and elsewhere, they destroyed the groves. It's a very simple little camouflage for something very dreadful. So, when you think about this expedition into the land of Palestine and the fact that they were told that these were devoted to the sword, you must remember that it was either that or allowing a gangrene to spread over the earth which ultimately must be dealt with by the Lord himself. For in this two Thessalonians there's no modifying of the words when you read He shall descend from heaven with flaming fire, taking vengeance. Those words are written in the New Testament as well as they're acted in the Old. We come now to the book of Judges and I'm also reminding myself that in the great epistle to the Hebrews where in chapter 11 we have the examples of faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. We not only have Enoch who walked with God and Noah who was perfect in his generations, and Abraham was a man of faith. But the Apostle speaks about Gideon and Barak and Jethar and Samson. He picks out four out of these books, as though if he only had time he could go on and give us further examples of this walk of faith. And so we must be prepared to say there's much in these books, however difficult it may be for us to thread our way through, that cannot be ignored if we're going to be uh, all-round fitted for the service of God. Well now, last time we looked at the book of Judges as a whole, and we had before us the general outline. The two things that stood out in that structure, it seems to me, 
was the desire, although it was badly expressed and it led them into further complications, the desire for a king and the desire for a king-priest. You remember how they wanted to make Gideon king? And yet, while he refused to be a king, he made an ephod, that is to say, he started a priesthood. And you've got others. And then right in the middle of it, Abimelech, the thirteenth judge, he comes forward and takes over the kingdom, the usurper, the Antichrist, which is there, foreshadowed in Judges, and which is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians as yet to come. So many things that were there in that early day, we may have to face again, perhaps from a more spiritual angle, but just as they were armed for their conflict, so even the epistle to the Ephesians doesn't end without telling us we've got complete armour, and a part of that armour is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now shall we look at the opening section of this book of Judges, and not that we're going right through this book, friends, but this is so important that we must give uh, the time at our disposal uh, to its consideration. I've got my own wording at the top of this chart, the root cause of the failure. And the root cause of the failure was minimising, toning down, watering or altering the command of God. Now they may have all manner of motives. They may have been more kind than God in their thoughts. They may have been greedy. I, well, I don't know. But I can see that there's a wonderful forecast of what goes on so many, many times. The teaching of the scripture is that we should turn neither to the right hand nor to the left. Keep straight on. And you must be prepared to be called very narrow. But inasmuch as the way of life is called a, a narrow way and a straight gate, it won't be a disadvantage if you can get through it all right, then you see. The scripture says, lay aside every weight. And you know how the psalmist looked at those whose eyes stood out in fatness and he was rather envying them till he understood the end. So our one great concern is the Lord's command for us and to be interpreted by his spirit to us and then so far as it humanly possible do what he has said, leaving consequences to him. Now you notice, first of all, in the opening chapter, we get two brothers of the tribes, it says in verse 3, And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. Well, you say this is a dreadful thing, but that's what they were told to do. And instead of agreeing to argue the matter out, they helped one another. But when you get to the other end of the story, you find that that agreement is gone. And as you get further down the list, there is weeping. You notice the angel, that word in the green letter, Bokim, that is weeping. There's failure to be mourned instead of success and victory. But we're going to stop, keep to the top part of this chart this evening. We shan't get right the way through it. I'll leave something for you to do, otherwise you won't be true Bereans. And we get to the next member, letter B, chapter 1, 21 to 26. Benjamin failed to drive out the Jebusites. He is a failure. They were told to, to, to drive out the Jebusites, but they failed. And then we have an illustration, a peculiar one at first, the man of Luz. We'll look at it again in detail presently. 
And then if you look further down in this chart, under the letter B, you see in verses 34 to 36, let's look at verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. The tables are turned, friends. Instead of these forcing the Amorites out, because God said, until the iniquity of the Amorites is full, you've got to mark time and wait even in bondage in Egypt. And then when the time came, they came out. Now instead of them forcing the Amorites out and taking possession of their God-given inheritance, by, by their pandering and their dallying and their various other attitudes, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. Oh, what a change. And then... But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Heres, in Agilon. In Agilon? Haven't I heard about Agilon before? Well, one of the most extraordinary miracles took place at Agilon. Joshua said, Son, stand thou still, and at the command of a man, we don't know how it happened, and I'm not attempting to explain whatever happened, God answered that prayer. Son, stand thou still in Agilon. And in Agilon, the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed, so they became tributaries. But, don't you see, that's not success, that's not victory. They became tributaries. Who told them to exact tribute from anybody? So there's so many pitfalls, aren't there? So many ways in which we can fail instead of succeed. Well, we go back on our story, and you get in the middle of it, that series of the words beginning with neither did. Look at it. Neither did Manasseh, neither did Ephraim, neither did Zebulun, neither did Asher, neither did Naphtali. That's a list of failure, isn't it? For all those neithers mean that they disobeyed the command that God gave them and they failed to enter into that inheritance, as he had said. And so you see at the end, in the letter B, the next one in chapter 2, God said, I said, I will never break my covenant. But if you look down to the, the parallel to that, the same letter A, I also said, I will not drive these out. Would you say God's changed his mind? No. A covenant means that two persons have made a contract. And if one person breaks it, the contract ceases. That's the reason why when God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, he put Abraham into a deep sleep so that Abraham could promise nothing and that promise is secure. But the other promises were sometimes made conditional. If you obey me, otherwise you'll be scattered to the ends of the earth and you know what happened. So we've got now this. It says, I said, I will never break my covenant and ye shall make no league. You shall make no league with them. Well, they did make a league with them. They did pander. And he said, now instead of them going, they shall be thorns in thy side. And he says, you obey me not. And their gods shall be a snare. And so this people, instead of coming into the land of God's promise, a holy land, and becoming a holy people, and a witness to all the world about the diabolical associations of the idolatry of those days, they got tangled up with it themselves. And I have a feeling that we need these words sometimes because we are tempted sometimes to lower the standard. We are told perhaps we're a bit harsh or we're a bit hard 
And it, we ought to remember the frailties of one another, so we should. So we should. But there is nothing written in the Word of God that ever excuses lack of faithfulness with regard to a stewardship. Anyone who comes to me and says, well, don't you think we could write down 50? I say, I know where that comes from. Of course, they don't come to me with those words. But over and over again, we get the suggestion. Oh, we can't be perfect in this life. Let's write down 50. Now, that was the unjust steward. And stewards, among, uh, if, he, if he's not successful, it doesn't so matter so much. If he's not very clever, it doesn't so, mat- so much matter. But if he's not faithful, the whole thing is surrendered. So, should we now come and look at these things a little bit more in detail, because I think the very wording of them has uh, a meaning for us all. Chapter 1, verse 27. I'm going to look at this central section, neither did. Chapter 7. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin and her towns, nor Tanakh and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblim and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns. Now look at the next bit. But the Canaanites would dwell. So they're, they're taking the lead. Now the Canaanites, oh no, they're not going. They would dwell in the land. <coughs> now you might be interested to know that there are some words here which are very suggestive. When it says, they would dwell, if you were reading the Hebrew language, you know what you'd see? You'd see the word that means to get married. It doesn't appear on the surface. I'll give you the same word in another context, Nehemiah chapter 13, 23. Now, Nehemiah comes a little before Psalms, if you have a difficulty to find it. Nehemiah 13, 23. The children of Israel here have gone back from their captivity into their holy city and now it all starts all over again. Verse 28, In those days also I saw uh, Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or your, for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? You see, here's a, here's a, 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 it's a serious matter to make this mixture. Half, half breeds. Even the language they spoke was was half and half. And God had already given in the laws of Moses this idea, you shall not plough with an ox and an ass. You must not sow me good seed. You shall not wear linen and woolen. Of course, that doesn't obtain today. We're not under that law. I I, I dare say everyone that's listening to me will get into trouble if they try to put that into operation with regard to their underwear. But they had a meeting in God's day. There must not be a mixture. The one great essential, you are a separated people. Keep that prominently in front of you and the rest will follow. Lose that and you lose the lot. Well now we come back again to this word. When it says they would, 
they would dwell, even that word is the word to be content. Uh, Judges 17.11 Judges 17.11 And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. You see, the word to dwell was that it was like a marriage contract and they were all content. Oh, I dare say they were very peaceful and very happy in that place. They hadn't got the ding-dong of battle that was going on elsewhere, but the one tragic thought was that they failed to do what the Lord had intended and they reached a dreadful harvest at the finish. Well, let's look at the others. It says, Oh, and then um, another, another thought, another word here which I notice. It says, the Canaanites would dwell, there's another shade of meaning, that they were the ones who made the overtures. They made the overtures. And I can't help feeling that these, in those days they would have possibly had that same old parable of the camel who put his nose in the tent. And you remember said to the master in the tent, now you, you don't mind me putting my nose in, do you? Well, you can't object to that, of course. Well, it's a bit awkward because I'd like to get me naked, you know. And once you start that, friends, the rot starts. So we'll pass on to, the, to another um, possible snare that we may have to face. The next one. The, um, the 30th verse, or the 29th, we'll just see what it says there. Neither Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Giza, but the Canaanites dwelt in Giza among them. So they dwelt among them. Here they agreed to differ. And you're supposed to be a decent sort of person if you agree to differ. Well, you may agree to differ with regard to your opinions because none of them are perfect. But you can't agree to differ as whether you will do this or do that if the word of God is explicit. So here they are. The next one is, Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Mahalot, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. All oh, of them are making a little bit out of this, this move then. It was the Canaanites who were paying tribute. One of the translations of this passage is very, very suggestive. They turned into labour gangs. They turned into labour gangs. And you know, there is a possibility that you make merchandise of the glorious trust that's given you because if you only soft-pedal this truth or don't say that, you might get a little bit more support and whatnot. All that's been the snare so many, many times. So they turned these Canaanites who were supposed to be expelled into labour gangs. They began to pay or collect tribute from these who ought to have been expelled. That was their downfall. I've got here a few titles that I've had in the course of time. I don't use them after my name. Uh, one is a Pope. Another one is that I'm a despot. And the third one is I'm a bigot. And then I added to that, I was a <coughs> hardy annual. <laughs> I didn't mind that one. Because when I went to Manchester once, Robert E. Lee, who has now died, 
introduced me to his company as a hardy annual. Uh, he meant to say that I turned up every year and he was very glad that I came and spoke to his staff on the mission. But you must be prepared to be misunderstood. Because if you stand resolutely for a truth that God has entrusted to you, uh, other people will say, well, you're a bigot, or you're a pope, or I don't know what, you see. I remember being called a pope in Glasgow because somebody else wanted to come and stand on the platform and give his exposition. And I knew what his exposition was. I said, no, no, you do the same that I've done. You engage this place and pay the price for it and stand on the platform and speak, but not in my meeting. You see, that's what we've got to sometimes watch. We can't regulate his, but we can avoid complicity. Now we look at the uh, verse 32. There are others that are mentioned in verse 31. Asher. And it says the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. For they did not drive them out. Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. I notice this word among is a very deep-seated word, for it's actually the word translated bowels in other parts of Scripture. And it's the inward parts that are spoken of with regard to the sacrificial cleansing and that of the animals. This is a very wonderful word. This is not merely casually dwelling among them, but they were almost part and parcel of the same community. They were one in heart and one in sympathy. And so the deterioration goes on. Again we have in verse 33, Neither did the, did Nathalie drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became tributaries unto them. And then finally, we have the uh, verse 34, and the Amorites forced them. Before we turn to that, I've just got a note that I would like to not forget, and that is to turn to Romans, the 12th chapter, for a moment. The apostle in this epistle has given us a tremendous doctrinal section, Romans 1 to 8, as you may remember, He's then gone into the dispensational question, chapters 9, 10 and 11, and at last he comes to your logical service. The word reasonable is the word logical. He says, now, as a consequence of all this teaching, this is the sort of people you should be. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or logical service. But he doesn't leave it there. Because, you know, we are so constituted that sometimes we have to be told what we are not to do as well as we what we are to do. Oh, how many times mistakes are made because we forget that little element of human frailty. And when I say that, I'm including myself very, very much with that little element of human frailty. Oh, I know. But it's there, in, it's a serious thing sometimes. And you will find that some of the writers of the New Testament go out of their way to say, he confessed and denied not. That's two ways of putting the same thing. But if you don't get one, you'll get the other. 
So here it says, end, verse 2, not merely present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable, and be not conformed to this world. Here's the negative side. So if you weren't quite sure of what it meant to be uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God, he puts the other side and says, the other side is not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You are to be acceptable and you are to prove that God's will is acceptable. Now I don't know whether I speak for myself or for you as well, but I think we would all have to admit without argument that God's will must be good and we'd all agree that God's will must be perfect. But am I right in saying that sometimes we're not quite happy about whether God's will for us is acceptable? Because if we never rebelled against it, we'd never commit sin again. So here we've got little words for our guidance. Just as these people failed so many times we could have it, neither did they this, neither did they that. And as a result, we get 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Have you thought of this? that all the dreadful apostasy which is yet to come, the man of sin, the son of perdition, is a logical consequence of what we are doing and going on at this present time. He doesn't come out of the blue. He arises out of what takes place now. And the more the Christian church denies the truth of God, either by actual, uh, act or by attitude, the more they agree to differ over this and get a world church with a world doctrine, they're getting ready for the man of sin. So we mustn't blame the future for all the dreadful things because they arise out of the present. And here we have again the same story written, just as in the judges. They did not do the thing that God told them and the consequences were tragic. I was going now to turn your attention, excuse me for a minute, to this Last statement. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. This is turning the tables with a vengeance, isn't it? For they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. So it starts off, you see, with temporising. It goes on to putting some of them under tribute. It goes further and living with them so intimately that the word could be they're married or they're as near together as the inward parts, and then it turns on them. And then they take the upper hand. Now this word, forced, is found in the record of Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And I think you'll see the irony of it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. That's the word force. Same word. They cried about the oppression of the Egyptians and God delivered them with an outstretched arm. They went out under the blood of the Passover. They went through a divided Red Sea. They went right through the wilderness. They crossed the Jordan. The sun stood still and nevertheless we get to the end of it, the very self-same oppression comes back on them. They've left it behind in Egypt only to prepare it for themselves in the land of Palestine. The Amorites, who were the Canaanites, whom God said had reached their limit, 
They are the ones that are now oppressing the children of Israel. I think that's drastic and dramatic, isn't it? To see the way in which the tables are turned. And you will realise, won't you, that unless you dig into the book a little bit, you don't get these things. I have to do this, and I'm glad to do it, but I feel sure that the more we do it, the more the book speaks, but it's written not merely in the language of men, it is in the language of men, but they turn out to be the words of the Holy Ghost with power behind them if we only will allow them to speak. Well, now let's take another. We go back on the, in our uh, story to chapter 2. Oh, where are we? I'm chapter 2, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, I mean down here. Yes, oh, the one I want to speak of is in chapter 1, first of all. Caleb is introduced into the story. Verse 20. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. Here we have the overcomers. This is verse 20. The overcomers. Now you remember, in the book of the Revelation, we have the seven churches, to him that overcometh, and right through that first section of those seven churches, we've got almost the same thoughts that we have in Judges. They're not called Canaanites, but they're just the same character. Would you go to the book of the Revelation for a moment and look at the way in which the seven churches have this very same problem and the way in which the Lord rebukes them because they were could have written against their names. Neither did the church at Ephesus, neither did the church at Sartre, neither See, just the same. A look at chapter 2 of, of Revelation Verse 2, I know thy works, and thy labour, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say thou are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. Verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here was a church that had found them liars, but he said, I've got a little bit against you, You've left your first love. Well, let's come a little bit further down and see the other church, what the Lord says to them in the ninth verse. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You see, there's the temptation again to temporize. Fancy having that lot in your community. They say they are Jews, but they're the synagogue of Satan. And then in verses 13 and 14, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But, notice this, even though they had that example of a faithful martyr, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, you can dig into early church history, and you'll have a difficulty to know who these Nicolaitans were. But if you only just know that the word Balaam means one who conquers the people, 
And the word Nicolaitan is made up of the, two, the word Nico, a conqueror, and laity, the people. It's just a, a repetition of the Balaam idea of deceiving them and getting them trapped. And so the story goes on, you see. These, these churches, they were either overcoming or they were being led into this deception. And him that overcometh, him that overcometh. Now, Caleb is introduced into the story here as a picture of the overcomer. You will remember that in the um, earlier story, when the ten tribes, when the ten spies came back to give their report, the twelve spies came to give their report, ten of them, oh, they said, we can't go in there, it's a dreadful place, the city's walled up to heaven, we saw the giants, and we in their, in their estimate were just grasshoppers, and the people wept. But Caleb and Joshua stilled the people and said, if God's given it, he's well able to take us in. And they wanted to pick up stones and stone them. Now God said, the only one that's going to get through out of that lot is Caleb. And then the time came in the book of Joshua when Caleb said, here am I, I'm about 85, I'm still as strong as ever. I now claim the reward that God gave me, he got his special bit. This is a picture of the overcomer. Now, in this story of declension where it says, neither one did this, neither one did the other, Caleb is introduced. And it says, he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. Now, the sons of Anak, we are told in the Old Testament, were giants. So this man could expel giants because he had the true spirit, whereas the others truckled and they became overcome instead. I think there's lessons for us here all the way through. Well, now, immediately following that, it says the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Now, how far the unto this day goes, we are not perfectly sure. But now there's a little story. At the house of Joseph, they also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. Bethel, the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent to describe Bethel, to have a look at it to size it up. Now, the name of the city before was Luz. Now, you know the story, don't you? Jacob rides at a place called Luz. And then because of the vision that he received and the words that were given to him, he changed the name of Luz to Bethel, the house of God. Now, do you know the meaning of the word Luz? No, you say, well, you tell us. Well, the word Luz means a bending or a curving. Oh, what a word. And it's also the name of the hazel, which is easily twisted and plaited into a wicker. The name of the place was twisting, turning, curving, bending. And it was changed from that to the house of God. Now they say to this man that they saw going into the city, show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, verse 24, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance into the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go the man and all his family. Well, you may say that was keeping their word, but look the consequence. And the man went into the land of the Hittites, these are the other lots, you see, and built a city and called the name thereof Luz. So he went back and perpetuated the old name instead of the new name Bethel. I mean, you can see all sorts of lessons waiting for you, you see, 
in these stories that are written in these early chapters. I think that, um, among other things, we'll have to leave the rest of it for another time. I've got just one word here. I think it is, um, yes, chapter 3, verse 7. Or chapter 3, verse 5. And the children, uh, and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. All the whole lot of them are there, you see. And they took their daughters to their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. That's what it was. You might have said, well, you've got to have an apartheid, are you? You've got so far as that. They married. But they degenerated. And the God that they, they had acknowledged who brought them out to the land of Egypt, out to the house of bondage, swear unto Abraham to give them that land, was passed by and they became idolatrous. And not only so, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam. Of course, that is the evil gods, but worse. And the groves. That's all it says. The groves. I told you that if you like to look up the Appendix 42 in the Companion Bible, you'll see that the groves has an obscene sexual element that was introduced accompanying this terrible worship. And it goes right through to the book of the Revelation. That woman, Jezebel, advocating it and making it almost with religious sanction. The world is getting ready for that. It doesn't want much of a religious sanction now. But if once someone could start a new religion in which this terrible thing could be a part, the whole rot then goes through like a canker. And it'll have to be excised, it'll have to be cut out. If Israel failed to do it, if the church has failed to stand, the Lord himself will take it in hand and one day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord forever. It comes back to us then and it speaks to us about the need for watchfulness, for care and for faithfulness. So for another moment or two, let me remind you of a few passages. I've already quoted the passage in Corinthians that it is quiet in stewards that a man be found faithful. Would you look at the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, 21? The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, 21. It speaks about the treatment of the apostles. He says in verse 20, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them and let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. And there was their stand. But then you know it wasn't long in the Acts of the Apostles before there was Simon the Sorcerer and all these other things coming in and another chapter too. Oh, the next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira stricken with death because of their attitude to the Spirit of God and his commands. And so we have this emphasis. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 15. Now 1 Corinthians 15 is known to us because of its emphasis upon the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 
Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. If you testify something which isn't true, you become a false witness of God. He's only using it as an argument here. But what, it, what, uh, in our actions, in the way in which we comport ourselves, in our attitude of the word, we are not merely false witnesses ourselves, but we are practically charging the Lord with the same thing. And so we have this strength and strong emphasis in the book of Judges and, uh, as to the awful results of minimising, turning aside to the right hand or to the left when God has given his commandments. There's one other feature I think we should have to deal with. I don't think I should be very happy in uh, saying we'll not consider any further in the book of Judges and not ask you to consider the problem that arises by the offering of Jephthah's daughter. Unless you know all about it, you know the answer. But I think it's a, a subject you ought to be able to speak about and give a scriptural answer to the problem that arises there. So we'll include that in our next study. And then another thing, I'm not sure about this, I'm only telling you what's passing through my mind. I wonder whether it will be wise, before we finish this series, if without being very elaborate over it, I gave you a little idea, you you may know all about it yourselves, you've got access to books, but a little idea of the archaeological discoveries that have been associated with Jericho, putting it upon the map and showing the veracity of this story, the very details that come out by the spade of the excavator. It may be that we shall round off this series by just one evening devoted to that side. So then we'll leave it for the time being and maybe not, as it were, lose the solemnity of the subject before us, of the need that when God gives us an order, let us see to it that we are like the Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, theirs not to reason why, theirs not to make reply, theirs but to do or die. That may be rather far-fetched, but I, re- I believe that's more or less incipient here. We don't argue about the Word of God. We don't argue about its application. We leave that, but if God has told us to do a certain thing, act in a certain way, it's wisdom, as well as right to say, Lord, what will they have me to do? And then arise and by his mercy do it.